Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Sea Glass Blue by Mel Forbes on AO3. Rating General Audiences. Chapter 4. It's staunch how simultaneously American and un-American rural places can be. He's accustomed to neon signs and 24-hour diners. So a lighthouse, painted in a red and white candy cane swirl, looking out over a misty sea, seems as if it should belong in another country. Elsewhere, or so he's heard, lighthouses are merely little shacks on the top of seaside cliffs, and there are plenty of lookouts from wars left over. Lights, semi-operational, the instructions for use probably impossible for locals to understand. As he shuts his car door, he tunes out the gladiolus rag they just heard on main public radio and wonders if what he's looking at is an American kind of beautiful or not. This is beautiful, Scully says, shutting her own door, and that answers the question. Though the path they drove towards the lighthouse was gravel, there are long seaside grasses everywhere else, all blowing in the breeze, damp from the rain and mist. He locks the car while Scully walks towards the lighthouse. When he looked the place up, he saw that in the summer, there are tours by the owner. So Scully knocks. The image almost comical. Red hair next to red paint. The caliber sweater peeking out of her raincoat. Her wellies muddy at the bottom. One gloved hand against the door. When he looks up, he can tell that the light is on, rotating in a foggy harbor. Likely just ornamental nowadays, but lit nonetheless. To his surprise, the door opens, and an older man in his sweater answers, furrowing his gray brow at the two of them, not unfriendly but rather unnerved by a pair of people knocking in April. We were wondering if you still do tours, Scully says, shrugging off the statement. The man sizes them both up, then says, I don't see why not. So he leads them through the tight ground floor of the lighthouse, then up the steep and spiraling staircase towards the light. He's owned this place for as many decades as each of them has been alive, and though it isn't in active use anymore, is now a tourist attraction more than anything else, he still likes to spend his time beyond that for maintenance here. Town's a bore, you know. And the view from up top is a better view to eat lunch by than that of my television, or worse, my old kitchen table. Throughout the lighthouse, the white-painted wood splinters in odd spots, and Scully trails a lone finger along the railing, looking out through all the windows, the fog obscuring any kind of view. It's usually prettier than this, the man laughs, shaking his head. Come back some other day, when it's sunny, and you'll get to really look out at the ocean. Alongside him, Scully says, Where we're staying, we can see the ocean from our porch. It's nice to wake up to, and the sunset last night was so beautiful. Was the rental cheaper in the off-season, the man asks? A halfway kind of joke. The weather nowadays wouldn't agree with most vacations. Spring wedding, she says. Honeymoon. We're cold weather types. They aren't, so far as Mulder knows. But then again, he can't picture her on a southern beach, can't imagine her comfortably wearing shorts. When he called every rental he could, trying to gauge driving distance and whether or not he could feasibly give her a real honeymoon in somewhere like Florida, a wicked drive, but one to the ocean nonetheless, He felt a pool in the opposite direction, going further north. All along, he thought he was doing her disservice by denying her a picture-perfect honeymoon, one spent lounging in a beachside resort, pina coladas served every few minutes, and sunset sex on a balcony, almost a commodity in and of itself. 
but he knows she likes the sweater she's wearing. She told him about buying it when she did in January, how she treated herself to it even though it wasn't work appropriate, how she wanted it so badly even if it's just for weekends. He thinks maybe, just maybe, he's done right by her. And she said the word honeymoon, and his mind goes blank when he realizes that, and his mind stays blank as Scully thanks the man for the short, foggy tour, then promises to come back on a better day. And his mind continues to be blank as he unlocks her car door and looks out the little beach before him, gray and overcast, waves coming in, sea foam bringing the brightest color around, long grasses drifting in the wind. Maybe their marriage isn't about a series of proper events, a checklist that makes them proper and good, and maybe no marriage is. Instead, it's about starting the car and letting her pick the radio station, though admittedly, there are so few here that it's not really a choice at all. Maybe it's about coming back on another day when there's less fog, the rush trip, the chemotherapy session, the wedding night spent falling asleep side by side on her couch, still in their good church clothes, the sleeve of her dress skimming his arm, seafoam blue, silky. He can remember its soft touch so distinctly, the sensation of her fluttering eyelashes on the skin of his neck, his thoughts willing her to go back to sleep so that they wouldn't have to talk about it all. He thought all of it was inadequate a parody of what she really wanted. But maybe this is what she wanted all along. Maybe this is what he wanted too, and any other option, a planned ahead white wedding, a honeymoon in the Bahamas, an engagement ring and a bachelorette party and bridesmaids and rice thrown at the end, would be wrong. She stops the radio dial on a staticky classical station playing piano music, with the car speakers on such a low volume. The waves outside sound louder than the individual sounds of the piano keys. Lizette Lieberstrom, she says, a dream of love. He puts the car in reverse and backs away from the lighthouse. Back at the cottage, she says she's going to lie down before dinner. Would he mind waking her for the sunset? And as he boils water on the stovetop, he looks out the kitchen window and wonders when exactly sunset is on most days. Normally, he doesn't like windows. When he spent the majority of his time outside of work studying his sister's case— He saw windows as a woeful reminder of what was to come. A tired day at work, an even more tired evening at home, and dinner out of a can. So he stayed up until the small hours of the morning yet again, without windows. He could do his closet trick of stopping time. He could mark the hours only by the yellow flickering numbers on a digital clock. And if he didn't bother setting an alarm for the morning, he would feel his afternoon spread like water out of an open dam, filling his apartment and letting him soak it all in. But here, the windows are different. In certain ways, time is different too. Two low tides, a sunrise and a sunset. Misty mornings making the world around him look perpetually mid-afternoon. There is enough time in the day to stop and pick wildflowers by the road. He can build his schedule around her being able to watch the sunset. Though he's not a good cook, anyone can handle penne pasta with jarred vodka sauce. He already asked if the alcohol would interact with any of her medications. In the cabinets, there's a Pomodoro cook timer, and once he pours the pasta in, he twists the timer and sets it on the windowsill, lets it tick as beyond the glass the tide ebbs and flows and engulfs little rocks on the beach. Tomorrow, there's supposed to be more sunshine, and he'll ask her what she wants to do with that brightness while they eat together. Dinner conversation. Leaving the pasta to cook, he goes to the bookshelf and scans over the titles, mostly classics, some guides to local flora and fauna, 
an atlas from 1980, a stack of torn-up vinyl album colors. Back home, she has so many books. He can't remember the last time he picked up a book and read for pleasure, barely makes it through books pertaining to cases, and skims even on stuff that matters to him. When he was in college, he used to read so much, pursued the books in the Bodleinian for hours, kept a paperback in his everyday bag. But as time passed, as he worked more and slept less, and used his home for isolation and almost nothing else, he stopped reading. He stopped doing much of anything. If he never stopped working, then he never thought of things that hurt. So he never stopped working. And then, a woman entered his office one day and made him think that, in theory, he could slow down. He could slow down if she wanted to stop for coffee on a long trip. He could slow down if she needed to eat something. He could slow down if she was tired and needed a place to sleep for the night. He could slow down as he picked the exact perfect bouquet to bring to her in the hospital, knowing that whatever news she would share would be dire at best. He could slow down if she wanted to marry him. So, classics. The kitchen timer sounds. He returns to the kitchen, turns off the burner, drains the pasta. When he looks out the window, he can see the very start of the sunset. He'll wake her, then finish dinner while she watches. That seems like a marital thing to do. Finish dinner while she does something else. In the future they won't have, she'll come home from work, at a private practice to him making dinner while the kids do their chores. And he'll kiss her cheek and tell her to get out of clothes that smell like a hospital. And he'll call out, Mom's home, and listen to sets of feet race down the hall and into the entryway. Now, when he looks out the window in the kitchen, he'll be able to see her watching the sunset from the beach below. He can build a life out of looking out a window and seeing her beyond him. Gently, he knocks on the bedroom door, then waits a moment before turning the knob. It's his space, too, after all but he's unaccustomed to going into his bedroom and waking up his wife. Though he's woken Scully plenty of times, he hasn't had the opportunities to wake his wife, so he's overly cautious, practically tiptoeing towards her in bed. She's curled up facing away from him, and for a moment, he illustrates the room differently, turning the waves beyond the windows into rain, changing the color in her cheeks from a livelish pink to a disconcerting gray. He can remember being in her apartment, driving her home from chemotherapy, bringing her a cup of chamomile tea, and wondering why he dared to ask. But it feels right, he thinks, as he crouches alongside the bed, her head level with his. But it feels right, he thinks, as he crouches alongside the bed, her head level with his. It feels right. It feels right. It feels right. He reaches out to touch her wrist. She wasn't really asleep. She opens her eyes with ease. Cheeks against her pillow, skin bare, and a little wind bitten. It's less cloudy, he says, voice softer than he expected it to be. I think the sun's about to set. I'll finish dinner in the meantime. She furrows her brow, asks, What do you mean? It's pasta. I just need to heat the sauce. When? Now? He looks down, and he feels as if he's said the wrong thing. Of course there's more to a marriage than having dinner on the table when she returns home, but he can't figure out where exactly he's gone wrong. Looking back at him, lips almost pursed with awkwardness of want, she asks, Would you mind going down to the beach with me? So he watches as she aches out her limbs as she slowly stands. She's wearing pajama pants that she doesn't want to get sandy, so he excuses himself, 
says he'll tend to dinner, puts the floral patterned stove pot lid over the strained pasta, figures he'll warm it along with the sauce. Somehow, miraculously, he has yet to mess up dinner. When she comes out of the bedroom, she's in jeans again, still wearing that same sweater from this morning, curled up and warm. He wants to wrap his arms around her and grip the knit between his fingers. She looks good in green. Freckles. Bright blue eyes. One of her eyebrows, the one that rested on the pillow, is askew. He longs to gently brush it back into place. Following her down the steps to the beach, he watches the bounce of her now-down hair, the way it flits in the light wind, the ends meeting the cowl of her sweater. He wants to remember every part of this. He fans his fingers, stares down at them, mentally outlines each hand, now with a ring on his left. The strangest but the most proper thing, basic gold band. He's never going to take it off. In his head, he hears her words, I don't need a ring. And though he didn't believe her then, he thinks that maybe he was the one who needed the ring, that maybe he never really overruled her in the first place. Though they have pictures of their marriage, though they have documents proving it's legal, there's something about a ring that encapsulates everything he feels as he watches her small shoes step down onto the rocky beach, as he sits down alongside her a few feet from where the water comes in. He likes in between kinds of places. Over the years, he's shared meals on the road with her, and there's a certain charm in those, a package of M&Ms at a gas station, the way she always ordered the lighter fare until now, the contrast between his plate and hers. Though the cottage is beautiful, he thinks he's loved her best in middle-of-nowhere towns, the motels flaunting that they have HBO, the greatest attraction nearby being the 24-hour grocery store. He's someone meant for the driver's seat of a car going almost nowhere, directed to a final destination that he can later blur out in his memory, following highway signs to the nearest major city, and then little nailed to a tree hand-painted ones to a local phenomenon. Had she not so drastically altered her career path, they never would have met. But he likes the intersection they have when they're together in small-town America and searching for something to do. Once, they went bowling in Des Moines while waiting for a toxicology report to come back. They hiked a portion of the Appalachian Trail together in order to reach a remote cabin where an interviewee lived, and he insisted on piggybacking her over the muck and puddles. Last summer, he tried to convince her that they had time for miniature golf before they met with the local police, but she gave him a single look that said a loud and clear no, and he never had the chance to propose such a thing again. When they're in sterile American places, he knows how to love her, how to jokingly ask if she wants to take a dip in the green motel pool, how to pour half a cream cup into her coffee and the rest into his, how to wake her when she falls asleep in the car on a stakeout. Since she married him, He's felt as if, without those moments, he doesn't know where to begin with loving her. But there's something about the natural world that's starting to bring him in. Though he usually spends weekends tucked inside, blinds drawn, television casting light into his living room, the overwhelm of the outdoors has started to feel like a good thing, like a solid thing, like something that will help him once she's gone. Above them, the sky goes yellow at the edges, then orange, then pink and the breeze ruffles his hair, goes right through his shirt, pushes around the pine trees up the ledges. When he looks to the right of their part of this ocean inlet, there's smoke coming from a chimney of a house across the water, the first sign of life near their rented cottage. 
He almost wants to stand up and wave to the windows of that house, announce their arrival, say that they're together on their honeymoon, ask if they could come over for dinner sometime. But when he turns towards her to comment on the smoke, he stills, the look on her face too enraptured to disrupt. While he seeks out different things, searches for something to stimulate his mind, she looks at the world like someone who won't be able to look much longer, like someone about to leave for a long trip to a very foreign place. She's focused, hands folded in her lap, staring up, staring out, not looking for something more, not looking for anything. She's listening because for her, there's plenty to listen to. The sky turns pink and he's getting cold. She must be so cold. At the hospital, she was always cold and she couldn't wear a jacket, not with a catheter in her arm. So she would pull a sweater over the front of her body, using it like a very small blanket. Other people there had a sick person's kind of blanket, made by a church parish, most likely, fleece and tied around the edges. But she resisted that kind of thing. He knew she would. He imagined that there was a stack of such gifts tucked away in the back of her closet or donated to those she believed had a greater need. When nurses came by to ask if she needed anything, she would say no. And though he knew better than to do so, he wanted to ask them to turn up the heat. It was winter, after all. She was cold. At least heat her fluids if possible. At most, she would ask for an antimedic, but he watched her grit her teeth and count her breaths enough time to know that she only asked for such things during her most painful moments. The last time he watched her have an intravenous catheter placed, she looked away from the nurse, furrowed her brow with pain, her vestige showing more resignation than pain, and though Scully didn't see any of it, he watched as the nurse panicked with some unexpected bleeding, the absorbent pad beneath Scully's arms soaking with it, the nurse wiping up what she could do with alcohol swabs. Did you get a good vein? Scully asked. The week before, the nurse had missed three times and had to put the catheter in a vein on top of Scully's hand, an unpleasant spot, and he watched as Scully fidgeted with it the whole time, clearly wanting to rip the thing out. Yeah, yeah, the nurse gave, still flustered. There's just some bleeding. Bleeding? Scully asked, then looked down at her arm to see blood dripping off of her elbow. The needle, those needles look so much longer than they ought to be, so much more painful than they actually were, and stained alcohol swabs. Then she looked up at him, and the fear he saw in her eyes rivaled any fear he saw in her when she accepted that she was dying. For the rest of her infusion, the last one, they were meeting with the hospice coordinator in two hours, even though they tried to research for a different day. He could tell that she was anxious, still upset from watching herself bleed, but he didn't know how to love her right then. His scully, so stubbornly independent, sweater on her lap because she wouldn't admit to being cold, dried blood on her arm, keeping her from blanketing herself with the garment. She took the animatic, only five minutes into her drip because she was done trying to overcome. While she propped up her infusion arm on her purse, she covered her face with her other hand, willing herself to calm down, and he didn't know how to love her then. It seemed like such a basic human sensation, the want for a loved one to feel warm, but he couldn't warm her up, couldn't figure out what to do that would make her feel better. He went to ask if she was all right, but before he could, she said, voice uncomfortably small, Mulder. And he was attentive because he needed to be, not because she asked, but because he needed to be. Would you mind, um? She pulled her hand away from her face. He pulled a seat closer to hers, 
closer to the pump administering her medication. Holding my hand? No, not at all, he said, taking her small hand in both of his, smoothing his thumbs over top, grazing the vein she once had a catheter placed in, soothing that spot. While he stared down at their hands, at their wedding bands, at the horrible and wonderful and morbid and peaceful thing they were doing together, she forced out a sigh, willing her body to relax. He wanted to bring her chamomile tea again and rub her back. He wanted to blow off the hospice appointment altogether and take her home, tuck her in, make her something simple and light for dinner, kiss her goodnight. He wanted to hold her hand so well that she would know wordlessly how much he loved her. He didn't know how to tell her otherwise. Words felt empty. When he could hold her hand instead and feel from the pressure of the veins beneath his fingers that she was starting to calm down. And the hospice appointment wasn't as bad as it could have been, even though the social worker there frowned when she heard about their marriage. Didn't even fake a smile when she saw the ceremony picture that Scully kept in her purse. After their trip, Scully would start having a home care nurse come in once a week for checkups. She signed a do-not-resuscitate order. Afterward, they were both grim, and she was exhausted. So they went home, her home, the only real one, and tried to take their mind off it altogether. Something from Blockbuster and the VCR, their strange marriage putting a gap between them on the couch. And midway through, she told him she was going to die. Yes, I... He trailed off, unsure of what to say. I just don't know when it will happen, she said, staring ahead on the couch, not looking at him. They say a certain amount of time, but really, it could be any time. I have no idea. I'm sorry, he said, instantly regretting the statement, cheeks warming with embarrassment. I just... She tried to find words, closed her eyes with tired frustration. I just don't know when it'll happen. Okay, he said, throat dry. If it happens suddenly, she said, looking down. I'm sorry. And he flushed with the meaning behind her words, with her discomfort, for she was apologizing to him for dying without warning him first, or rather, she was trying to warn him about something he could never really prepare himself for. They both knew that there was a high enough probability that she could go to sleep and simply not wake up. Though he wasn't sure if he made it up or actually heard her say it, he thought that was good enough jostling. Maybe going over a pothole while driving could push the tumor in a way that would kill her in a matter of seconds. They had seen enough horror in their lifetimes to not need a doctor to explain how ugly, painful, and unpeaceful death would be. I don't intend for it to be like that, she forced out, tone growing anxious. I... He pulled her close to him because he needed her close, because he needed her alive right now, because he didn't want her to see that tears were stinging his eyes, and her palms were flat on his back, her chin against his shoulder, cheek to cheek, hands balling shirts, bodies together, cars passing outside her window, the rest of the world going on, time stopping only for them. The sky turns dark blue above them, and Maine's skies are so shockingly clear, so filled with stars, and he can name the constellations above, more than just the obvious ones. If it weren't so cold out, if they weren't on a rocky beach, he would lie back with her, sides flushed, and point each constellation out while she rolls her eyes and says, Of course I know that one, Mulder. He looks to her, and despite the sweater, she looks so cold. Now he can take her inside, 
Get the wood stove going. Feed her. Pull a blanket over them both on the couch. Now he can warm her up. Dinner, he asks, standing up and reaching a hand down towards her. She takes his hand, and he helps her up. She doesn't let go like he expects her to. Instead, holds his hand as they head back up the steps, going single file because the railings make the stairs so narrow. Mulder, she says from behind him as he steps onto the porch. He turns around, and the constellations feel even closer up here on the bluff, and her face in the darkness is so unrecognizable, yet so familiar. Like a long-lost but loved photograph, like a childhood memory so graciously brought to the present. He looks to her, pauses on the deck. Dinner is going to be late, but he doesn't care at all. Thank you, she says looking down. For last night. For waking me up. No need to think, Scully, he says, leading her into the house. But she stays put, pulls him back. It's been on my mind all day, she admits. And I wanted to thank you for being there. She looks down at their joined hands, then brings her open hand over them, the smallest of embraces, and across the inlet, the living room lights of another house click on, and he thinks she might really love him. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there.